Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We are so lucky, Paul, uh, to be able to have the opportunity to sit down with Bill Miller, legendary investor, widely respected for his ability to outperform the S&P 500 with his Lake Mason Value Trust uh, for 15 consecutive years, an unheard of track record. Uh, and he joins us here, currently chairman and chief investment officer of Miller Value Partners with uh, $2 billion of assets under management. So Bill, thank you for being with us. I want to start with this idea of outperformance. Because you have achieved that. And I'm wondering, as people talk about Bill Gross, for example, talking about how it's increasingly difficult to outperform in an era of indexed funds. Do you agree? I think it's always been difficult to, to outperform. In fact, uh, when Warren Buffett set up his partnership in the 1950s, he said that uh, he would consider it a good result if he could outperform the Dow Jones Industrial Index and pointed out that I think there might have been 80 or 85 mutual funds at the time and only about 5% of those had been able to do that over the past 10 years. So it's always been difficult. I think it's, it's trickier now a little bit, not because of index funds, but because of the changed, I'd say, polarity of the market after the financial crisis and specifically that the financial crisis was so devastating to so many people that, that effectively people are risk and volatility phobic. And so whenever there's a perception of increased risk where the stock market volatility goes up, everybody rushes to, quote, reduce their risk exposure. And that leads to these kind of cascading events like we saw in the fourth quarter. Well, Bill, we've seen a, a, a tremendous move towards uh, passive investment across uh, the investment uh, horizon. Maybe that was accelerated a little bit by some of the things coming out of the financial crisis. Is that a trend you expect to continue? Or do you think there's a day for active uh, advisors? No I, no, I think the trend is, is likely to continue. I, I saw a study by, I think, Mercer that, uh, that indicated that the, the market could still perform its functions of price discovery if over, even if over 70% of the market stock market were indexed. And I think the trend is, you know, it's, it's longstanding, um, and I think it's there for a good reason, which is that, um, A, it's very difficult to outperform, and B, so many people uh, that are trying to outperform are afraid of tracking error going away from the market, especially on the downside, that they're effectively closet indexers. So right. they're, they're basically high-priced passive investors. And so the movement isn't so much from active to passive. It's from expensive passive to cheap passive. Well, it seems like that's a no-brainer as to what people would want. You know, you talked about how it's always been hard to outperform, and yet you did so <laughs> for more than a decade straight with your fund. What's the secret? Please reveal it right now, right here. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that the, the, um, I'll answer it in a slightly different way. Uh, well, answer it in two different ways, right? The, uh, the, the way in which we invest, and people can outperform a wide variety of different strategies, but we're value investors, and so we're looking to buy businesses at a discount to what they're worth. And I'd say that the secret is that, that earnings have very little to do with what they're worth. Probably the best example is Amazon, where people for 15 or 18 years would say, oh, it's grossly overpriced because they make no money. And my answer to that was, um, my answer to that was always, well, they came public with a $400 million market value, and now they have an $800 billion <laughs> market value, and they never sold any stock. Where, where, where'd that value come from? 
And the answer is that they created a lot of value. They just didn't, didn't report uh, a lot of profits under gap accounting. And one of the, one of the things that I, I try to impress upon people is there's a reason it's called generally accepted accounting principles and not divinely inspired <laughs> accounting <laughs> principles or immaculately conceived right. accounting <laughs> principles. <laughs> well, it's interesting as you talk about uh, how the amount of money that they actually are bringing in at any given time isn't necessarily what the company is worth. Interesting to say this at a time when Lyft uh, just started trading and we have all of the IPOs, the big tech darlings that are slated to go public later this year. Do you think that that's a similar situation to Amazon or do you think it's different because they waited for so much longer and they're coming at sort of a peak market valuation time? You know, I, don't, I haven't looked at Lyft carefully enough to, to have an informed judgment about it. Um, I think all of those companies that you're talking about are, are very rapidly growing companies doing something different from what other people had done 10 or 20 years ago. And so they've generated a lot of excitement because they've grown revenues very rapidly. It's, it's less clear to me what the economic model of the business is sustainably longer term. So, Bill, we've had some tremendous volatility, you know, just over the last four or five months with that meltdown in December, you know, I guess hitting the trough uh, Christmas Eve, and then this uh, great start to 2019 with the S&P up over 12%. What is your view of the market right now? Oh, I, th I think the market, you know, we're going to end the quarter up somewhere 12, 13, 13%. Yep. Um, I think the market is very attractively priced relative to alternatives. You know, the bonds yield, what, 2.4%, right. something like they trade at 40 times a cash flow stream that isn't going to grow. And stocks trade around 16 times forward earnings. And with a cash flow stream that's going to grow around 6%, generating a lot of free cash. So I don't, think, I don't think that the alternatives to stocks are particularly attractive. And I think that stocks, by the way, are, are actually cheap. So, well, let's way. There are a lot of stocks out there that are very cheap and that, um, that I think are going to do very, very well. In the United then, States? Oh, yeah. The, yeah, of course. Any names? Yeah, well, uh, well, Amazon's still 20% off the high. And if you look at AWS, Amazon Web Services, and you look at the advertising business that they've just recently been growing, those two businesses alone in about three and a half years, if they're valued similarly to what Facebook and Google were valued at when they were in the high growth phase, or that um, something like uh, Salesforce is currently valued at, those two businesses alone will be worth more than Amazon's entire market cap. What about the banking sector? Because we've seen them really beaten up based on the uh, narrowing yield curve and fears of growth. If stocks still look good, then that means growth isn't that bad. Attractive valuations there? Oh, yeah, yeah. We love the, we love the financials, broadly speaking. But we own, you know, we own JP Morgan. Um, we own Bank America. Are you adding here? We have, we have full positions in those. If we didn't have them, we would be buying them here, yeah. What are some of the other, so is there any sector that just scares you right here, that whether from a valuation perspective or you just you can't get your hands around the fundamentals? Because it seems like, again, with the 12% move here in the S&P, there's been pretty broad performance here. I, th I think that utilities and consumer staples are unattractive in here. They're trading at high valuations relative to history. That's because they're, they're low volatility, they're predictable, and so they, they perform a risk uh, mitigation function in many people's portfolios, but in terms and and so obviously if we if we have a deflation if if the world gets right. a lot worse they'll continue to do fine, but I think we're going to settle in here to a you know one point eight percent two two point one percent growth rate, and and they're not competitive in that in that kind of an environment. There seems to be a, a real kind of uh, dissonance in the market right now because there are a lot of people saying that U.S. equities are still uh, very attractive. 
But then you also have bonds that are gaining dramatically, yields dropping and indicating some sort of downturn or slowdown. Do you think that those two ideas are incoherent, that basically you can't have bonds continuing to rally with yields continuing to go lower uh, with stocks still ripping higher? Well, let's put it in a little broader context. So bonds had a 35-year bull market from 1981 to roughly, what, 2013, 14. Yeah. Right? And so bond, you know, bonds are in a bear market right now. Bond yields bottomed in 2016. So at one, what, 138, I think. And, uh, and so now we're at 230, 240. So yes, they've rallied from where they were last year. But I think that uh, you know, if you look at stocks, stocks are a lot higher than they were in 2016. So I think that stocks, and, that's, and the reason for that is that stocks are more attractive than bonds. And, and bonds will protect you, on, uh, you know, if, if we have a, a recession. But um, they're not going to help you if growth just chugs along at 1.5% or, or 2%. You're going to gradually lose money in bonds over time. You mentioned uh, the R word, recession. What is your view of this uh, inverted yield curve and how much concern should investors have as it relates to potentially a recession? Uh, very little. Okay. Um, you know, people are, again, not thinking about, I think, the yield curve in a, in a way that reflects what's going on there. So you've got, you've got $10 trillion worth of sovereign bonds of negative yields. Yeah. And you've had the, this financial repression, whether it be Japan buying half of the JGBs or what Draghi did or what the, the U.S. Fed has done. So that, that has suppressed yields globally. And, uh, and actually, US, the, the yields in the, in the U.S., I think, are reflective of that. And also, to emphasize again, the financial crisis changed people's perceptions of risk. So here we are at the game conference. There are all these students here who are looking to go into the business. What advice would you give uh, a budding young professional looking to go into finance right now? Well, I, I think, you know, finance is actually, this is not... Uh, something that I think people are happy about. But finance has been gradually gaining market share in the global economy for a long time, and it changes the where the where the you know where the action is. So that you know right now the action is in VC and startups and things like that. Maybe maybe hedge funds, not in mutual funds, which are in secular decline. But I'd say the I'd say the most important thing is just get in. You know, get a job in finance, and and once you're in, then it's easier to move around to something that might be more attractive. But asset management still an attractive career. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good business. It's a business that's under secular pressure for the reasons I talked about, which is uh, the, the move to passive, uh, for example. And, uh, and I think there's, you know, there's, it's, it's highly regulated, so that's, that's a, a, a negative in my, in my opinion. But, uh, but no, it's, it's an attractive business. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned regulation, and obviously a, a significant layer of regulation came upon the financial services industry after the financial crisis. Is that just the new way of life, or do you think that... Uh, you know, as time moves on, some of those regulations may peel off this industry and would allow maybe improve the profitability of the financial services industry. Um, you know, I think I, I agree with Jamie Dimon. Uh, and when, when Jamie said it's, it's not a question of, of more or less regulation, it's a question of good or bad regulation. So I, I think we want to get rid of bad regulations right. and good regulations. We can have more of those. Bill Miller, thank you so much for all this time that you've given us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa. Bill Miller is Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Miller Value Partners with $2 billion under management. But Bill Miller, legendary investor, uh, he outperformed his leg base in value trust outperformed the S&P 500 benchmark for 15 straight years. It so can be done. It can be done. <laughs> it's difficult. It's always been difficult. But Bill Miller has done it.
Well, today we are closing out what is shapes up to be the best quarter in performance for the S&P 500 since 2009. The question a lot of investors have is what's left? To help, we're going to pose that question to our next guest, Kate Moore. Kate is Chief Equity Strategist for BlackRock with, get this, assets under management, Lisa, $6 trillion with a T. It's just amazing. Uh, <laughs> Kate joins us here at, in New York at the 9th Annual Quinnipiac Game Conference here in Midtown. Kate, thanks so much for joining us. So I'll put that question to you. God, we've had such a run here this first quarter. I think the Bulls will tell you, yeah, but we're just kind of clawing back what we lost in the fourth quarter last year. How do you see it? Glass half full or half empty? Uh, glass neutral at the moment. Look, as an equity investor, I think you always have to be a little bit of an optimist and you have to really look for long-term opportunities. But I'll be honest with you, as much of a bull as I've been over the last 10 years, this cycle, I have to say the run that we had in the first quarter is going to be really difficult to replicate in the second quarter. So much of the returns, not just in the U.S. equity market, but across all regions, have really been driven by multiple expansion and not so much about an upgrade of fundamentals. So I am very focused as companies are reporting their first quarter earnings for like more positive guidance yeah. and for sort of a sense that uh, the downward revisions we've had to 2019 expectations are kind of behind us. We're not going to get another big multiple snapback, 13 14% like we had right. um, in terms of multiple expansion this year. So... So Lyft shares, I should just mention, because we've been talking about this throughout the day, uh, Lyft shares did open uh, for trading on the NASDAQ. They opened at $87.24 a share, a huge pop from the $72 uh, that it was initially priced at yesterday when it had its IPO. And I just wonder, uh, Kate, this will be viewed as a huge win for the slate of IPOs that are lined up for later in this year. I'm thinking Pinterest, I'm thinking Uber, I'm thinking Palantir, all these big tech uh, darlings. Do you view this as a positive sign or a negative sign for equity markets? Look, I think there's an almost insatiable demand for tech companies. What we need to see is that all the companies that come to market end up becoming profitable and not just good stories or have a good consumer base to begin with. This is a story about sustainability at this point in the cycle. We're not in the early stages. We're at the later stages. You know, once we get, you know, these shares trading, it's going to be a show me moment, I say, over the coming quarter. So I'm not going to comment specifically on Lyft, but to say, you know, we are long-term bulls on technology. We see uh, a lot of these companies coming to market as kind of broadening the landscape for that sector. But we really want to see them uh, earn good money <laughs> and, and earn it through slower growth periods. Can you imagine that that's actually something that investors care about, making yeah. money? I mean, you're sitting in the, <laughs> I don't know if Kate was in the New York lunch where there's probably hundreds of investors. I wonder if people were really pushing back on the profitability. It doesn't seem to the be. The lack thereof, you the mean? The lack thereof, <laughs> the lack thereof. So, Kate, you know, one of the things that's been driving the market uh, this year and arguably pushed it down in the fourth quarter last year, some of the not you know non-earnings things some of the geopolitical right. issues right. you know and one of the things is is trade for example so i mean i know where our folks are over in china right now how important is that still to the market to get something done with china something meaningful i think it's incredibly important and here's what i would say uh we've had a real repricing of the u.s china risk not just the tension around trade but also the the overall relationship between the two countries you know in the last three months Certainly, that was a downward pressure on the market in the fourth quarter. We don't want the market to become complacent about this, though. Uh, if we get an agreement that's not substantial or that doesn't really dig at some of the uh, deep issues between the two countries, then we're going to be constantly revisiting um, the relationship and trade for many quarters to come. So, look, as I think about the next couple of weeks, uh, 
we need to see something that is you know, more than surface. We need to see something that's more sustainable. It seems that both the US and China are looking to sit at the table together for sustained periods of time, so that's encouraging. But if something doesn't manifest, I'd say the left tail on this trade is pretty big. Um, and you could see some of the steam come out of the market. All right, so uh, that potentially could be a wild card. I'm curious about a call that you made recently in a report that you helped co-author, uh, where you still see value in having a substantial allocation to government bonds, even at yields that are this low. Do you stand by that? Why? Look, this is about overall portfolio construction. Like, look, I'm an equity strategist, but I come from a macro background. And I understand that at this point in the cycle, you need to have a pretty good balance between, between risk and reward. And uh, we're recommending still an overweight to equities and to U.S. and emerging market equities in particular, but also to sort of balance out your portfolio by saying, you know, it makes sense to own treasuries at this point in both a business and a market cycle. Where, like what maturity? So we've had a pretty big move in the last uh, week and a half, two weeks. So, you know, value is a little less exciting than it had been. So um, she's saying shorten up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's basically what she's, yeah. That is exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> um, you know, the, and that this move actually says, you know, is sending different signals to different risk asset markets, et cetera. But uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't own treasuries as a balance to the, to the equity part. Given the dovish tilt by the Fed, we've seen a lot of the risky assets perform well, the high yield bonds, uh, emerging markets. What is your view on some of that pushing out on the risk curve a little bit, given the performance that we've had? You know, it's frustrating a little bit because you think about the last decade and we've wanted to get to a period where the market was obsessing less about Fed moves, mm -hmm. Fed language, Fed body language. And, and all <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, an overall central bank tone. And, you know, the frustrating thing here is that uh, we are still incredibly focused on every bit of uh, news we get from policymakers. There was a, a former boss of mine that used to say, uh, markets stop panicking when policymakers start panicking. And I think that's what we've had a little bit over the last three to four months. This shift to dovishness has made markets feel more confident. But I would sort of note, you know, we don't, we don't expect we're going to be in a contraction in the U.S. economy or the global economy. We're still in pretty good shape. And I think the balance of risks around the next rate move uh, is not being appreciated by the market. That's a nice way of saying the market's pricing in cuts when we don't think that's likely in the near term. Kate, uh, since we are here at the Quinnipiac Game Forum <laughs> with all of these students here, what advice would you give someone starting out in finance? Yeah, I think the biggest piece of advice I would give is to stay really open-minded. Our industry is changing. The way that we invest today is so different than we did it 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, the kinds of information we incorporate into our investment process, uh, the flexibility you need to have. And so, you know, I'm, I'm completely blown away by how many students are here and their passion for investing already. Uh, but as they think about their careers, they need to stay really open-minded um, as this industry changes. I've pivoted a couple times. <laughs> I'm sure I still will in the, the, the balance of my career. Um, and to be really willing to sort of disrupt your own process. Don't get stuck on analyzing a stock or an asset class in a very specific way, be really willing to take into new information. Kate Moore, we always love having you on. Thank you so much Thank for being you. with us. Kate Moore is Chief Equity Strategist for BlackRock with nearly $6 trillion of assets under management.
Boy, the S&P is up uh, 12% year-to-date. It seems like uh, you know everybody's making money, but one sector of the market that is just getting clobbered is healthcare. Uh, just news, you know. I guess most recently news that uh, the Trump administration is renewing its uh, its push to eliminate Obamacare uh, to get a sense of kind of what is going on in healthcare and how to view this sector going forward. We welcome Aaron Gibbs. Aaron is a portfolio manager uh, at S and P Advisory Services. Uh, she joins us here in New York at the uh, Quinnipiac Game Conference. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. So, this seems like a secular concern and overhang for this sector. How should investors approach healthcare? So what you really need to do is break it down in between the industries because a few of the industries are what's really dragging down the entire sector, specifically all the managed care companies. So your companies like your CVS, Anthem, uh, Centene, anything that has a lot of exposure to Medicaid, that's been really hurt. Um, now there are some areas like biotech that are really don't have so much to do with the big headlines. It's more about, you know, failing drug trials. So it's, it's tough to say that you know, this is all of healthcare, the sector is just getting hurt by the headlines. Um, a couple weeks ago, they were actually being helped by some of the Medicare for all on the Democratic side. So we've got this whiplash constantly going back and forth, ultimately that leads to a lot of uncertainty about any managed care providers. I'd say the one safe spot for most of it is big pharma. Uh, they they are just slow and steady. <laughs> Their profits tend to be so large that they're not going to be massively hit by changes in Medicare or you know a few million people here they're subscribing. Uh, and so that is one safety area. And another area that we still like are the life sciences, the technology, the analytics. Um, again, people are still going to be using those products, and that's one area of, of really high growth that hasn't been hit even half as hard. Yeah, I understand the reluctance to bet on uh, policy and politics. It seems like that is a uh, rather fickle uh, type of assessment. But here we are, the health insurance industry, the health yeah. insurance stocks have lost about $40 billion of market value in the past month uh, based on some of the news that we've been hearing. At what point do you say, all right, this is pricing in a lot of bad stuff. It kind of seems like a buy right now. So not right now. And this, so it, particularly looking at any of the health insurers, managed care, that, that entire group, um, right now we don't see a bottom just yet. Certainly the valuations are looking attractive. They're trading well below their three-year averages. In fact, the, actually the health insurers have the second highest expected earnings growth out of the healthcare sector. So fundamentally, the, at least the expectations still to date are looking very good. But obviously that can change dramatically if any of these come into play. So I'd say until some of the uncertainty, until some of these headlines start dying down, we could still see some more downside. I would not say that this is necessarily the point to get in. Uh, I, particularly those companies that have large exposure to Medicaid. Yeah, it's interesting. Lisa quoted that $40 billion number. I was actually taken aback about how much some of the sectors within healthcare have actually traded off on this concern that there might be a rollback of Obamacare because with the Democrats now controlling the House, it just didn't seem very likely. But the markets certainly put some, some stock into that. Well, I mean, a lot of it was just sort of the decline that we've had in the beginning of March. So that was just more of the general market. If you just looked at the past week where this has actually become part of the headlines, mm -hmm. it's really just the managed care okay. that has been down in the past five days. So if you break it down between like market, what's the market's going on in healthcare, it's, it's really just been the past. It's been the managed care companies, biotech, pharma, 
uh, a lot of these companies, Life Sciences, they've actually been holding up pretty well uh, for the past five days. You know, you talk about biotech and how it can be really hit or miss, right, depending yeah. on all of these trials. How do you even assess that unless you've got, you know, a doctorate in, uh, in, <laughs> in research, in medical research? I mean, and even then... Uh, so truthfully, so we we are value investors, and I also have a quantitative background. So yes, biotech <laughs> is actually one area that I tend to avoid, because how can I possibly manage uh, or estimate uh, or evaluate in a company when they're supposed to lose money for three years and then maybe <laughs> they hit it big? So yeah, I actually think this is one area that I I highly recommend that it needs to be a fundamental analyst, really with a PhD. Actually, I have a couple friends that are in that space that all have PhDs. And MDs, it's crazy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so they're the ones that I go to advice when it right. comes to biotech, not a quant like me. So <laughs> I'm not going to give any stock picks on biotech. Well, it's interesting. You know, one of the other themes, and I agree, that it seems like a casino on the, those biotech stocks, you know, kind of a, we saw with Biogen just with their uh, Alzheimer's drug a couple of weeks ago where the stock got. got yeah, and that, and that pulled down the entire industry for that week. Right. Right, so it's very difficult. One of the other big themes in, in healthcare that's just been there as long as I've looked at the sector's M&A, um, you know, we see, you know, going after big pharma companies, buying biotech, buying drugs, buying yeah. pipe pipeline. Uh, is that still a theme that you think is prevalent for this healthcare sector going forward? I know a lot of big pharma has stopped, has been pulling back. Um, I, you know, they, they're somewhat saturated in some of the M&A. They're being more particular. Um, also, a lot of biotechs are finding that they're able to raise enough money in private equity in order to IPO eventually until they have a viable product line. So I don't see that as being as big of a trend um, with with the big pharmaceuticals. Um, what I do see more is the life sciences, uh, the analytics, medical equipment, um, basically taking some of the human element out. Uh, and creating those processes, I see that as a big area of growth. We're talking with Aaron Gibbs, Portfolio Manager, focused on equities for S&P Investment Advisory Services here at the ninth Annual Quinnipiac Game Conference. And just to give you a sense, we're ending the quarter on a high note. The NASDAQ up about a half a percentage point. S&P uh, closing out its best quarterly return yep. since 2009. A lot of people wondering how long this can go on. Aaron, I would love to get your sense on a broader level of whether there is a sense of optimism and, and whether the technicals seem to indicate that this has staying power. So one of the things we looked at is that when you've had these really great first quarters, what was happening in the year before? And the thing, and you need to take this into context, and the big thing is that fourth quarter of last year, we were down 14%. So when you're, this is really a rebound quarter. It's not about, oh, this is such a great economy. We're growing at such a fast rate. It's just undoing the carnage that happened in the prior quarter. And when we look at the forecast for this year, particularly when we're looking at 2.5% profit growth for the S&P 500, that's below mediocre. Right. So, so, I mean, how much you, you mentioned the profit growth. I mean, there's a concern here that, obviously, the first quarter earnings we know across uh, will not be good. No. Second quarter also, so we might have that earnings recession that people talk about. Yet people, a lot of investors are hanging their hat on improvement in the second half of the year. Right. Are you in that camp as well? Certainly. I mean, we're looking at contraction in the first half. Yep. So, I mean, I'd certainly hope that we'd at least start to see some growth in the second half and at least end up somewhat neutral. But for, for the most part, our, our expectations are tempered. We're not saying that we're looking for a recession or necessarily a down market. Um, but given that we're already up 12.5% this year, 
I don't know, maybe we'll end today 13. <laughs> uh, I'd honestly, I'd be happy if we could just go home, like, flat for the rest That's of the year. That's what I keep saying. That's <laughs> what I keep saying. <laughs> well, Aaron, uh, just lastly, I want to wrap up here with the Lyft IPO. It does seem like it is positioned to open at $86 uh, a share from the uh, actual IPO price of 72 so a real nice pop there. It hasn't started trading yet, but that seems to be the indications. Do you view the uh, sort of roster of IPOs that are slated to come to market this year as a good sign for uh, just the health of the economy, et cetera, or do you view it as a sign of the market peak? No, in general, if we're having more if more companies come to market, I think that's a good thing. I'm personally, I do not recommend investors uh, get into Lyft, but overall for a general market perspective, certainly I think that's very healthy, much better than what we've been seeing in prior years. Aaron Gibbs, thank you so much for being with us. A thank pleasure you. having you. Aaron Gibbs, portfolio manager focused on equities for S&P Investment Advisory Services in New York City. Well, we have a lot of guests on who talk about the future of finance and what it might look like, the asset management field, the investment banking business. There's no better way to get a sense <laughs> of that than to look at the people who are going to be running everything uh, in the future. And so we are very pleased to be joined by students of Quinnipiac uh, Business School, as well as the Dean and Professor of Finance at Quinnipiac School of Business, uh, Matthew O'Connor, students John Wentz, Alessandro Abbas. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Matthew, I want to start with you about this conference, which is organized by students, if I understand this correctly. What do you think uh, is the most important thing that they get out of it? So, well, first of all, thanks for having us on this morning. We really appreciate it. And I want to welcome everybody to the Quinnipiac's ninth annual uh, game forum. So there's a couple of things that we think are great about game and what students really get out of it. The first is we're getting them out of the classroom and in front of the very best minds uh, on Wall Street. And that is uh, an incredible learning opportunity for them. So they can compare what they've learned in the classroom and see that it's not always exactly the same. And they also see that there's a wide range of opinions that are expressed uh, throughout the panels and the sessions. So that's a great learning opportunity for them. But the second thing that's just as important is there's about uh, 1,400 students here. And so they're starting to make their uh, network and build their network to make connections with each other. So we think that's uh, the second most important thing about the game conference. Networking, you, you, you can never start early enough in networking. Exactly, right? exactly. I hear it starts at kindergarten in New York City. <laughs> exactly. So Alessandro, you are a senior, is that right? Yes. Okay, correct. so he's a senior majoring in finance. Uh, what is your area of interest here today? What do you want to hear? What do you want to see? What do you want to understand? I'm really interested in seeing more um, and hearing more about the global portfolio management, um, emerging markets, and domestic markets. Um, I am the portfolio manager of the Quinnipiac Endowment Offshoot Student Run Portfolio. And uh, Is that real money? Yes. That's real money. Okay. $2.5 million. Oh, that is real money. Yep. How are you okay. doing? Doing pretty well. Our um, growth fund is up 23% on the year. Oh. And... Uh, John's going to talk about our value portfolio. Uh, yeah, we also have a value fund that we run. Um, it's larger It's larger of the two funds, but um, compared to the S&P, it was up uh, 13% versus 11% for the S&P. So, you know, it's we're like seeing, Bill yeah, we're seeing, Bill Miller numbers. We're seeing outperformance <laughs> in both are. funds. So, you know, it's going well. And we're enjoying it. Well, one thing, John, uh, you're a finance major yes. uh, and an accounting minor, and I'm wondering, at a time of such flux in the finance business, whether it's on the asset management side or on the banking side, 
Uh, how does that affect kind of how you want to position yourself going into into the business? Um, you know, I mean, obviously the the market today for uh, outgoing students going into this field into finance it's it's very competitive. You really have to know what you're talking about. You have to know, you know, what you're looking at. You have to be able to speak, you know, correctly and fluently. And um, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be difficult going and, and actually on that path and, and finding what I want to do and getting to the point where I want to be at. But, you know, other than that, I think if I just, you know, nose to the grindstone like I've been doing and, you know, like the like the work that Alessandra and I have been doing, I think that'll ultimately reach my goal of, you know. Yep. So, so, so Dean O'Connor, you know, it seems like when I, you know, back in my day, it was all about Wall Street, all about business school, and now it's tech. Tech's the sexy, cool thing. Yeah. A lot of kids going engineering and all that kind of stuff. How are the business schools adapting? So I think they're adapting in a couple ways. Uh, so absolutely right, tech is critically important. Uh, but now all of our students are getting a much better grounding in, in analytics. We're introducing things like coding um, into the business school curriculum. We're not expecting them to be expert coders, but we want them to be able to, to understand that and contribute in their firms. So I think if we, we take the, the traditional business education, it's still critically important, but layer on some of the new things, particularly analytics, particularly coding, uh, bring in uh, discussions about fintech, uh, I think the students are going to still be great contributors down the road. So, but, uh, Alessandro, uh, what's been the best performing uh, bet that you guys have made in your portfolio? So, the best performing bet so far has been GW Pharmaceuticals. Okay. Whoa. I actually pitched that last semester. We had a 120 uh, entry, and uh, we did a trim around, I think it was 175. It's, it's, I loved following that company. I had a real passion for it. I researched it a lot and it's paid off greatly. Interesting. So John, sitting in that seat about 15 minutes ago was the greatest value investor, arguably of all time, Bill, yeah, so, <laughs> Bill Miller. What's, How yeah. do you feel sitting there? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I got big shoes to fill, I guess. <laughs> in 15 seconds, what was the best uh, name so far in your portfolio this year? Um, overall, to date, uh, Microsoft has been a big name in our value portfolio. Year to date, um, I believe that the, a lot of the tech stocks that we have in, in the value section um, are the outperformers. Um, I, I believe Microsoft year Good. to date is it's the outperformer. Microsoft being a, a value yeah. stock. Matthew O'Connor, Dean and Professor of Finance at Quinnipiac School of Business. John Wentz and Alessandro Abbas, both seniors at the Quinnipiac School of Business. Thank you all for uh, joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.